0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Luke chapter 6? Luke chapter 6, verse 6 through 11, is where we will be in God's Word together this morning. If this is your first time with us. We've been uh, walking through a series titled That You May Know, where we've been considering the, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, That we would would know him as our savior. As Matt said, I'm I'm Evan, I'm one of the pastors here and just so glad to be able to gather together and and worship the Lord. Um, And as we gather together to worship the Lord, it's very important that we always have it in our minds that the reason why we are here is not really to see each other, uh, though that is part of it and a blessing. The reason why we're here is to see the Lord. And our passage for this morning uh, is an interesting passage uh, because we're we're seeing in this passage an interaction between Jesus and uh, Pharisees and scribes, uh, the religious leaders of the day. Um, And it's, it's interesting because the Pharisees are a bit of a cautionary tale. In this season we're considering what it means to know Jesus. If there was anyone that should know Jesus is. There should be these, these scholars and men who dedicated their lives to the study of God's word. Uh, but what we will see in this passage is that uh, knowing about God and knowing God are critically different things. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. It says, on another Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the privilege of knowing you. And the privilege of serving you. Lord, we need you always. We need you in this moment. Give us hearts that are receptive. Lord, I ask that as I speak to the ear... You would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I came across an article of an interview of a man and his dance team. Mark Smith was talking about his dance troupe and how they did all kinds of genres in their team, ranging from ballet to hip-hop. And they would sell out shows across the U.K. And what was interesting about this interview is that Mark Smith was detailing how this dance team gathered and planned their performance, but every single person on the team is deaf. That's right, not a single person in this dance ensemble can hear a thing. Now, if you're like me, a natural question arises. If they cannot hear, how do they dance to the music? It's a good question, and certainly that is something that came up in the midst of the interview. Mark Smith explained to the interviewer how it is that they are able to do this Sold out dance performance and every single team member is deaf. He says when they go to the dance floor, every single dancer is barefoot. They go to the floor and they feel the vibrations of the music in the floor. And so they use the vibrations to stay in step with the music. And if there's ever a moment when they feel like they're getting out of step with the music, they'll, they'll run back to the piano or, or the stereo, you know, they'll put their bodies real close and just feel the vibration of the music and let it seep down into their bodies to feel and they run back to the dance floor and they, they do their dance routine and if they feel like they're getting out of step with each other or with the music, they'll, they'll run back again to the piano or the stereo and they'll just hug the, the music and allow it to get down into their bodies so that they can stay in step with the Music. In a world that might call what they have a handicap, Mark Smith and this dance ensemble have figured out how to stay in step with the music. Sometimes we all need help staying in step with the music. In this life, we struggle to hear the gospel. Sin has thrown us off sin has deafened us sin has made us so that we are not actually able to stay in step in our own strength but yet in the Lord's grace and his love he continues to call us back in he continues to invite us to hear and he continues to play while we grow in getting the song into our heart and what I love about the word of God Is that we see in the word of God example after example of of people that keep falling short. Keep falling out of step with the gospel. And yet the Lord never gives up on us. But the question is, will we choose to dance to his song? Or will we go our own way? Do our own thing? Figure it out for ourselves? In our story for this morning, we see Jesus interacting with a few different folks. Some among them are the Pharisees and scribes. There was no more frustrating an opponent to Jesus and his ministry than the Pharisees. That they come on the scene in chapter 5 and immediately they are antagonistic to Jesus. And I remember I would always be frustrated when I would see the Pharisees. And, 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 and the longer I, I live, though, uh, the, the longer I know Jesus, the longer I do ministry, uh, the more I actually resonate with the Pharisees. I mean, it might sound strange, right, because when, when, you, when you read the Bible, you don't actually know a whole lot about the Pharisees, right? The, the Old Testament does not have them. And then when the New Testament comes, they, they come on the scene and immediately are against Jesus, which is a big no-no to the story, right? And so you, you, you don't like the Pharisees. You don't want to be the Pharisees. You're never going to hear a sermon about how you should follow the example of the Pharisees. But then I learned some of the background of the Pharisees, that the Pharisees were a group that that formed as resistance to the constant pressure of the world around them to bend to anti-biblical or anti-law ideologies through idolatry and blasphemy. That the Jewish people were constantly feeling pressure and oppression to follow the gods of this world. And the Pharisees, the the separate ones, that's what Pharisee means. They, They rose up to say this is what it means to be faithful to the scriptures and we will remain even in the midst of constant pressure to bow down to idols, to bow down to oppression, to bow down to all these things that are going on around us. From the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans... It was all around them all the time, and the Pharisees were helping the people of God to stay the course. And you can respect that, right? You respect people that that hold fast to good theology and, and resist oppressive regimes, right? So what happened when we get to the New Testament? Why, when we get to the New Testament, do we see the Pharisees, the servants of God, in constant battle with Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, that should be a match made in heaven. The issue was that the Pharisees misunderstood the nature of the heart. And so when Jesus comes on the scene... He's not actually respectful of the religious system. This system has been in place for generations, for years. And Jesus, he's a troublemaker. He doesn't seem to want to fall in line with any of it. I mean, we see it in chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus is blaspheming. Verse 30, Jesus is colluding with sinners. Verse 33, Jesus is rebelling against religious customs. We get to chapter 6 and Jesus doing a big no-no. He seems to be breaking the Sabbath. So by the time we get to this story that we read this morning, the Pharisees are not on the fence about Jesus anymore. He has got to go. He is a threat to our way of life. We need to get rid of him. And so now they come and they're scheming. His end. And they feel like they've found their opportunity with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a big theological point for Jewish people. It was incredibly sacred. Of course it was sacred. I mean, the Lord instituted and modeled it in Genesis 2. He etched it in stone in the Ten Commandments. Even in Exodus 31, God says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. That's a big statement. But the tension with the sacred command is that there's not a whole lot of detail about it. The the law simply says, cease from working. The Sabbath was a time to, to rest and to worship. Beyond That's not very concrete. So what do well-meaning religious people do when there is something that is incredibly sacred but not a whole lot of concreteness to it? They make a rule. We got to have rules so we can be clear that we are good at this. We don't want the slippery slope. The slippery slope is very dangerous. We want to be sure that we are good enough, so let's make a rule. And then when we make that rule, we can police other people around us who don't follow that rule because they are not being good as we made it concrete. So the mantra becomes, do better. Do better. Do better. Follow the rules. And here are the points for it. Here's the ranking system for it. And I can hear my my skeptical friends here. They would respond back, see, Evan, this is why I'm not religious. Because there's just so many rules. I don't need all these rules to, to, to have what I need in life. Religion is a crutch. I don't want to lean on a crutch. To which I would say, you might find that you have more in common with these religious Pharisees than you think. Because these Pharisees, in in a desire to feel good enough, they started leaning on some self-constructed rules of goodness. So what props them up are these rules. So what props you up and convinces you that you're good enough? What props you up? What do you lean on when you feel weak? Your positive thinking? Your self-determination? Your degrees? Your age and stage in life? What do you lean on to get this sense of I am good? And how do you know that it's better? You know, what's been interesting about this season, that, you the know, researchers are saying that in 2021, actually mental, mental illness and mental health is actually struggling even more than in 2020. Which is wild to think about, if you think, because 2020 was a mess. But researchers are saying that 2021, mental health is actually even more of a struggle. And and as the world is opening up more and more and there is some sense of normalcy happening that people are actually struggling even more. They're trying to figure out why is that? There's a lot of reasons. I think one of the reasons is is that 2020 showed us two things. One, what our crutches are. And two, how fragile they are. 2020 showed us that we're leaning on a whole lot and nothing is strong enough to really hold up the weight of this world. You're leaning on your physical health? <laughs> You're leaning on your economic stability? You're leaning on relationships that you can count on and miss good times and hard times? All of it was in flux in 2020. And we're coming into 2021, and jobs, they they got hiring signs all over the place. People don't want to come back because they know I can't really lean on these jobs. But there is one who can handle the weight of this world. There is one that when we lean on him, all striving can cease. But the Pharisees would rather lean on their own self-constructed rules to feel good about themselves. I wonder if you can relate to that. And then Jesus comes, and he's a rule breaker. Jesus comes, and he's providing some context on top of these rules that the Pharisees have. These Pharisees are... They, they, they had it figured out. Rule after rule after rule. For the Sabbath, they made about 40 rules and governed all kinds of things. How, they, they addressed how many steps you can take. They, they talked about uh, how heavy something can be that you can pick up. Restrictions on eating. Restrictions on bathing. Rule after rule, thinking that they were going to rule out sin. But rules don't actually cure sin. They restrict it, they restrain it, but they don't actually cure it. It reminds me of a story that I heard from Dr. Tony Evans. He shares the story of a man that went to the doctor as he was feeling pain all over his body. And he goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, doctor, please help me. I'm feeling pain from the top of my head to, to the tips of my toes. Please help me. There's pain everywhere. The doctor looks at him and says, okay, well, show me what you're talking about. So he, so he touches his head and says, ooh. And, and he touches his chest and says, ah. And he bends down touches his leg and he cringes and I, tears start welling up in his eyes. And he tries to bend over and he almost topples over in pain as so he touches his toes. And the doctor shakes his head and looks at him and says, you knucklehead, you have a dislocated finger. The issue was the man had pain. It was bothering him. It was hurting him. But he did not really understand the true nature of that pain. The Pharisees had all the rules figured out. But they missed the nature of sin. And Jesus is not trying to address rules. He's trying to address the heart. And so in verse 6, we see him teaching in the synagogue. Probably there was standing room only as his ministry launched and hundreds if not thousands of people are flocking to encounter this man, Jesus. the Pharisees are there, but they're not there to worship. They're not there to to get a word from God. Verse 7 lets us know they are there to trap Jesus. Which begins a series of ironies because I'm sure plotting to assassinate someone on the Sabbath is not keeping the Sabbath. (laughs) But verse 8, we see what? Jesus knows their thoughts. And he decides to capitalize on their thoughts. And he does something unusual to the Gospels. This is one of only a few times in the Gospels where Jesus is performing a miracle unprompted and uninvited. He sees a man in the crowd. This man has a withered hand. This man just showed up in the synagogue, just trying to live his life, just trying to mind his own business. It was already probably a little controversial for him to be there because there was often an association between physical ailment and sin. So people with these kind of afflictions often wouldn't even go to the synagogue because people would judge them. But this man is is here. Just scoots in, wants to hear a word from Jesus. And he has no idea that he is a pawn in this pharisaical plot until we get to verse 8. Where Jesus sees him probably in the back and he says, come here. Come here and stand right here. And I don't want to speak where the text is silent, but I just wonder what went through the man's mind. Did he have stage fright? Was he terrified? He was trying to hide. Was was he hopeful? Did Did he know who Jesus was? Did he know what Jesus could do? We don't know. All we know is that Jesus saw him in the crowd. And that's a little side note right there. If I had time, I'll talk about that even when we feel like we are not seen, Jesus sees us. Even when we feel like we might be overlooked, Jesus sees us. So Jesus, he he calls out to this man, come here, stand here. The man rises and he stands there. And the story begins to move forward again. And there's an exchange about to happen between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we're going to see two things with this. That Jesus is trying to put his glory on display. And he's trying to put the hard hearts of the Pharisees on display. We see this emerge in verse 9. When Jesus asks... Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And Jesus asked this strategically. First off, that's the same language that the Pharisees used at Jesus in verse 2 in chapter 6. But the other thing is, is that Jesus is actually exposing them. Because According to the interpretive laws, right, so so these are the traditions and the interpretive laws that the Pharisees made on top of the law of God because, again, the law of God was not concrete enough. It wasn't clear enough. And according to the interpretive laws, it says this, when life is in danger and whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. So the trap that the Pharisees are trying to set for Jesus is, is he going to heal a non-life-threatening issue on the Sabbath? But Jesus already exposes them because where they're forming their theological debate is not even on the word of God. So when Jesus starts, is it lawful? They're already caught up because they know they're not standing on the law of God. They know the trap that they're not setting is not actually the law of God. The law of God does not talk about life-threatening versus non-life-threatening issues. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus says in Mark 7a where it says they, they leave the commands of God for the traditions of men. They're more concerned about their rules than they are about the actual word of God. So what does the law actually say in this matter? The Pharisees memorized whole books of the Bible, so I'm sure they could have easily thought of certain things in the word of God. They they might have thought of Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, that says, See, I have set before you today life and good, familiar language, (laughs) death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules Then you shall live. They might have uh, remembered in Isaiah 1 or Isaiah 58 where where the Lord speaks back to Judah in their idolatry and and he tells them, I don't want you to bring me any more offerings, any more Sabbaths, no more prayers, because you refuse to clean your hearts. They might have thought of Isaiah chapter 117 where, where the Lord says, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Judah was fine with keeping the Sabbath as long as they didn't have to actually live for God. We see this culminate in Matthew 23 when, when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you have ought to done without neglecting the others. Is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to save life? Of course it is. (laughs) Nowhere in the law is that an exception. Nowhere in the law is that ever a question. Unless you've made your own rules about it. And what's really ironic here is is that there's no actually interpretive law about miraculous healings. (laughs) Because nobody could do it. (laughs) But Jesus here, he's about to do a miraculous healing. There's no law for that. But do you think the Pharisees care about that? Nope. Jesus is the issue. Let's focus on that. So Jesus asks this question. And we see in verse 10, there's a parallel story in Mark chapter 3 about the nature of this, that Jesus is, is looking around at all of them. But it's not just that he's looking around at all of them. He's actually seeing their silence because he knows how off the step of the gospel they are. And when he's looking around in the parallel Mark chapter 3, it doesn't say he's just looking around. It says that he is grieved and angry. At the hard hearts, the Pharisees. The Pharisees refuse to repent. They refuse to surrender to what Jesus is saying. They don't want to soften their hearts. They would rather this man continue suffering. They would rather think about this man as a theological issue to fight about than a neighbor to love. So verse 10, we see something in his anger and grief, our hard hearts that often arise in his troublemaking. And this is very sobering for me as a religious leader. Because I often take for granted that I've studied. That means I know God. I'm always wrestling with self-reliant, self-constructed rules. I was confronted by this in seminary when I was going through the rigors of all these different things. The hard class for me was Hebrew. Now, Greek was hard, but Hebrew was on a whole other level for me. I don't know why. I just could not understand these dots and squiggles in Hebrew. And so I was studying and preparing for these exams, and I just couldn't get it. And I was working hard, staying up all night. And I got to a point where I was just done. I was spent. So I went to bed. Uh, The next day I rose for the exam and I was going to study some more, do a little last-minute cramming. Y'all know. Uh, But instead I decided to go to chapel. And I went to chapel and the chapel speaker that day, I don't remember what all he preached about, but I remember a question that was piercing to my heart. He said, did you come to seminary to learn better Christ dependency or to learn better self-sufficiency? Did you come to seminary? To learn better Christ dependency or to learn better self sufficiency? And that question pierced me to my soul. Because here I was at this institution of learning about God, learning the things of God, learning to worship God, and here I was in my own efforts trying to figure it out, doing things my own way. But similarly, did you come to church to learn better Christ dependency? But to learn better self-sufficiency. We underestimate how grievous and angering this is to the Lord. We underestimate it because where rules say, do better, do better, do better. The gospel says, it is done. Dance to that. So verse 10, we got to wrap up here. We see something very interesting. The story concludes in verse 11. But before we get there in verse 10, we see this miracle. And and it's just so funny to me. Did you see the little detail in verse 10? He he says to the man, stretch out your hand. (laughs) Somebody missed it. The, The Pharisees are there because they're trying to get Jesus caught up in what is he going to do on the Sabbath. And he doesn't actually do anything. He tells the man, stretch out your hand. And when he stretches out his hand, then he is healed. And so Jesus is still dancing with their rules. You don't want me to do anything? Fine. Hey, bro, lift up your hand. And how do they respond? Are they excited that Jesus abided by their rules? Are they excited that this man was healed? Are they excited that they can continue in worship? No. Verse 11 says they're furious. They're in a rage that this man is healed. How dare you? In the parallel story in Mark chapter 3, it says they immediately went out to plan how to destroy Jesus. Which again, planning to destroy someone on the Sabbath is not keeping the Sabbath. But it's here that we see what they really care about. They don't actually even care about their rules. What they're really caring about. Why are you so angry? Why are you so flustered by Jesus? Because Jesus is trying to take control. I'll make any rule if it means that I stay in control. And Jesus, he's trying to take control. And the Pharisees don't like that. And so we see the seed of what is going to culminate at the end of the gospel. They're planning and they're plotting and they're trying to destroy Jesus and they feel like they have won. Don't they? Because Jesus dies at Calvary. He's he's crucified because this man would dare blaspheme the ways of the Jewish people. And they think they have won. But, oh, the story does not end there, does it? Because he actually stands in victory, raised on the third day. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't abide by my rules. You saved my soul by breaking them. But I wonder if you can relate to the Pharisees. Do, do you know what it's like to to be fighting to keep control in your life? I'm fine with Jesus as long as he keeps my rules. Don't touch anything. Don't meddle with my life. If God meddles with this part or that part, I'm done with him. I like how Abraham Kuyper says it in this. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He says, it's all mine. If he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. So as the song says, from life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. So, how are you building your life? Are you building your life on your ways, on your efforts, on your rules? And God just needs to figure out how to fit into it? Or are you ready to surrender to Christ, the rule breaker? In the interview with Mark Smith, in this Deaf Dance Ensemble, the interviewer asked, how, how, now how do you overcome these struggles with, with being deaf? Isn't it hard? And Mark says back to him, we can't always choose the music life plays for us, but we can choose how we dance to it. Brothers and sisters, sin has deafened us. And Jesus, in response, he actually holds out where the paths are. Life and good or death and destruction? And you get to choose. Where rules call out for self-dependence and do better, the gospel says it is done. Will you choose to receive that? May it be so that today and always we will cling to the music of the gospel and find who we are there. Amen. Amen, let's pray. So Lord, we do confess that we struggle to believe you and trust you because when you show up in our lives, you take over. That makes us afraid. But Lord, you still call out to us to worship you. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to see that you take on all of it and you can stand under the weight of our lives. Help us to see you, believe you, and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.